0: Chapter six of The Mountebank by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter six. A kiss must mean either very much or very little. There are maidens to whom it signifies a life's consecration. There are men whose blood it fires with burning passion. There are couples of different sexes who jointly consider their first kiss a matter of supreme importance and, the temporary rapture over, at once begin to discuss the possibilities of parental approbation and the ways and means of matrimony. A kiss may be the very devil of a thing, leading to two or three dozen honourably-born grandchildren, or to suicide, or to celebrate addiction to cats, or to eugenic propaganda, or to perpetual crape and the boredom of a community, or to the fate of Abelard, or to the fall of Troy, or to the proud destiny of a William the Conqueror. I repeat that it is a ticklish thing to go and meddle with it without due consideration, and in some cases consideration only increases the fortuity of its results. Volumes could be written on it. If you think that the kiss exchange between Andrew and Elodie had any such immediate sentimental or tragical or heroical consequences, you are mistaken. Andrew responded with all the grace in the world to the invitation, It was a pleasant and refreshing act. He was grateful for her companionship, her sympathy, and her inspired counsel. She carried off her frank comradeship with such an air of virginal innocence, and at the same time with such unconscious exposure of her half-fulfilled womanhood, that he suffered no temptations of an easy conquest. The kiss therefore evoked no baser range of emotion. As his head was whirling with an artist's sudden conception, and, Mark you, an artist's conception need no more be a case of parthenogenesis than that of the physical woman. It had no room for the higher and subtler and more romantical idealizations of the owner of the kissed lips. You may put him down for an insensible young egoist. Put him down for what you will. His embrace was, but gratefully, fraternal. As for Elodie, if it were not dangerous, she had the street child's instinct— what did a kiss or two matter? If one paid all that attention to a kiss, one's life would be a complicated drama of a hundred threads. A kiss is nothing, so ran one of her dicta recorded somewhere in the manuscript, unless you feel it in your toes. Then look out. Evidently this kiss Elodie did not feel in her toes, for she walked along carelessly beside him to the door of her hotel, a hostelry possibly a shade more poverty-stricken in the flag paved by street, a trifle staler-smelling, than his own, and there put out a friendly hand of dismissal. "'We will write to each other?' "'It is agreed. "'Allons, au revoir.' "'Au revoir, Elodie, et merci.' And that was the end of it. Andrew went back to Paris by the first train in the morning, and Elodie continued to dance in Avignon. If they had maintained, as they vaguely promised, an intimate correspondence, it might have developed, according to the laws of the interchange of sentiment between two young and candid souls, into a reciprocal expression of the fervid state which the kiss failed to produce. A couple of months of it, and the pair, yearning for each other, would have effected by hook-or-crook a delirious meeting, and young romance would have had its triumphant way. But to the gods it seemed otherwise— Andrew wrote, as in grateful duty bound. He wrote again. If she had replied, he would have written a third time. But as there are few things more discouraging than a one-sided correspondence, he held his hand. He felt a touch of disappointment. She was such a warm, friendly little creature, with a sagacious little head on her. By no means the tete de linotte of so many of her sisters of song and dance. And she had forgotten him. He shrugged philosophic shoulders. After all, why should she trouble herself further with so dull a dog? Manlike, he did not realise the difficulties that beset even the sagacious-headed daughter of song and dance in the matter of literary composition, and the temptation to postpone from day to day the grappling with them, until the original impulse has spent itself through sheer procrastination. It is all very well to say that a letter is an easy thing to write. When letter writing is a daily habit, and you have writing materials and table all comfortably to hand but when like elodie you would have to go into a shop and buy a bottle of ink and a pen and paper and envelopes and take them up to a tiny hotel bedroom shared with an untidy space usurping colleague or when you would have to sit at a cafe table and write under the eyes of a not the least little bit discreet companion for even the emancipated daughters of song and dance cannot in modesty show themselves at cafes alone or when you have to stand up in a post-office, and then there is the paper and envelope difficulty, with a furious person behind you who wants to send a telegram, Elodie's invariable habit when she corresponded on the back of a picture-postcard with her mother. When, in fact, you have before you the unprecedented task of writing a letter, picture-postcards being out of the question, and a letter whose flawlessness of expression is prescribed by your vanity, or better, by your nice little self-esteem, and you are confronted by such conditions as are above catalogued, human frailty may be pardoned for giving it up in despair. With this apologia for Elodie's unresponsiveness, conscientiously recorded later by Andrew Lackaday, we will now proceed. The fact remains that they faded pleasantly and even regretlessly from each other's lives. There now follows some years in Lackaday's career, of high endeavour and fierce struggle. He had taken to heart Elodie's suggestion of the exploitation of his physical idiosyncrasy. He seeks for a formula. In the meanwhile he gains his livelihood as he can. His powers of memory stand him in good stead. In the outlying café-concerts of Paris, unknown to fashion or the foreigner, he gives imitations of popular idols from Labagie to Pola. But the Ambassadeur, and the arcazar d'ete and the Folie Marigny and olympia and such-like stages where fame and fortune are to be found will have none of him paris too gets on his vagabond nerves but what is the good of presenting the unsophisticated public of brest or bezier with an imitation of monsieur le Bagi? as well give them lectures on thermodynamics sometimes he escapes from mimicry he conjures he juggles he plays selections from Carmen and Cavalleria Rosticana on a fiddle made out of a cigar-box and a broom-handle. The provinces accept him with mild approbation. He tries Paris, the Paris of Menilmonton and the Outer Boulevard, but Paris, not being amused, prefers his mimicry. He is alone, mind you, no more croissant combinations. If he is to be incited, let the audience do it, or the vulgar theatre management, not his brother-artists. Away from his imitations, he tries to make the most of his grotesque figure. He invents eccentric costumes. His sleeves reach no further than just below his elbows. His trouser-hems flick his calves. He wears, inveterate tradition of the circus clown, a ridiculously little hard felt hat on the top of his shock of carroty hair. He paints his nose red and extends his grin from ear to ear. He racks his brain to invent novelties in manual dexterity. For hours a day, in his modest chambre garnie, in the Faubourg Saint-Denis, he practises his tricks. On the dissolution of the sac Rocambeau, where, as Auguste, he had been practically anonymous, he had unimaginatively adopted the professional name of Andrew André. He is still Andrew André. There's not much magic about it on a programme. But, que voulez-vous, it is as effective as many another. During this period we see him a serious youth, absorbed in his profession, striving towards success, not for the sake of its rewards in luxurious living, but for the stamp that it gives to efficiency. The famous mountebank bank of Notre-Dame did not juggle with greater fervour. Here and there a woman crosses his path, lingers a little, and goes her way. Not that he is insensible to female charms, for he upbraids himself for over-susceptibility. But it seems that from the atavistic source whence he inherited his beautiful hands, there survived in him an instinct which craved in woman the indefinable quality that he could never meet, the quality that was common to Melisande and Phaedre and Rosalind and Fedora and the child wife of David Copperfield. It is, as I have indicated, the ladies who bid him bonsoir. Sometimes he mourns for a day or two, more often he laughs welcoming regained freedom. None touches his heart. Of men he has acquaintances in plenty, with whom he lives on terms of good comradeship, but he has scarcely an intimate. At last he makes a friend, an Englishman Horatio Bacchus, and this friendship marks a turning point in his history. They met at a café concert in Montmartre, which, like many of its kind, had an ephemeral existence. The nearest, incidentally, to the real Paris to which Andrew Lacadet had attained. It tried to appeal to a Catholicity of tastes, to outdo its rivals in scabrousness. Did not Ferrandol and Lisette Blondie make their names there? And at the same time to offer to the purer minded an innocent entertainment. To the latter, both Lacadet with his imitations and Horatio Bacchus with his sentimental ballads contributed. Somehow the mixture failed to please the one part scared the virtuous, and the other the debauched yawned. La boîte blanche perished of inanition. But, during its continuance, Lacadet and Bacchus had a month's profitable engagement. They bumped into each other on their first night at the stage door. Each politely gave way to the other. They walked on together and turned down the Rue Pigalle, and, striking off, reached the Grand Boulevard. The brasserie d'Hotel enticed them, they entered, and sat down to a modest supper, sandwiches and brown beer. "'I wish,' said Andrew, "'you would do me the pleasure to speak English with me.' "'Why?' cried the other. "'Is my French so villainous?' "'By no means,' said Andrew. "'But I am an Englishman.' "'And how the devil do you manage to talk both languages like a Frenchman?' "'Why? Is my English, then, so villainous?' He mimicked him perfectly. Horatio Bacchus laughed young man said he i wish i had your gift and i yours it's the rottenest gift a man can be born with cried bacchus with startling vindictiveness it turns him into an idle sentimental hypocritical and dissolute hound if i hadn't been cursed young with a voice like a cherub i should possibly be on the same affable terms with the almighty as my brother the archdeacon or profitably paralysing the intellects of the young like my brother the preparatory schoolmaster was a lean and rusty man of forty with long black hair brushed back over his forehead and long upper lip which all the shaving in the world could not redeem for the blue shade of the strong black beard which at midnight showed almost black but for his black mocking eyes he might have been taken for the seedy provincial tragedian of the old school a young man said he my name said andrew is lackaday and you don't like people to be familiar and take liberties "'Andrew met the ironical glance. "'That is so,' said he quietly. "'Then, Mr. Lackaday—' "'You can omit the mister,' said Andrew, "'if you care to do so.' "'You're more English than I thought,' smiled Horatio Bacchus. "'I'm proud that you should say so,' replied Andrew. "'I was about to remark,' said Bacchus, "'when you interrupted me, "'that I wondered why a young Englishman "'of obviously decent upbringing "'should be pursuing this contemptible form of livelihood.' "'I beg your pardon,' said Andrew, pausing in the act of conveying to his mouth a morsel of a sandwich. He was puzzled, who Down on their luck, had cursed the profession for a sale métier, and had wished they were road-sweepers, but he had never heard it called contemptible, a totally new conception. Bacchus repeated his words, and added, "'It is below the dignity of one made in God's image.' "'I am afraid I do not agree with you,' replied Andrew, stiffly. I was born in the profession, and honourably bred in it, and I have known no other, and do not wish to know any other. You were born an imitator? Seems rather a narrow scheme of life. I was born in a circus, and whatever there could be learned in a circus I was taught. It was, as you have guessed, a decent upbringing. By gum it was, he added with sudden heat. And you're proud of it? I don't see that I've got anything else to be proud of, said Andrew. And you must be proud of something. "'If not, you'd better be dead,' said Andrew. "'Ah,' said Bacchus, and went on with his supper. Andrew, who had hitherto held himself on the defensive against impertinence, and was disposed to dislike the cynical attitude of his new acquaintance, felt himself suddenly disarmed by this, "'Ah!' perhaps he had dealt too cruel a blow at the disillusioned owner of the pretty little tenor voice in which he could not take very much pride. Bacchus broke a silence by remarking, "'I envy you, your young enthusiasm. "'You don't think it better we were all dead?' "'I should think not,' cried Andrew. "'You say you know all that a circus can teach you. "'What does that mean? "'You can ride bareback and jump through hoops?' "'I learnt to do that, for clowns' business,' replied Andrew. "'But that's no good to me now. "'I am a professional juggler and conjurer and trick musician. "'I'm also a bit of a gymnast, "'and sufficient of a contortionist to do eccentric dancing.' Bacchus took a sip of beer and regarded him with his mocking eyes. "'And you would to keep on throwing up three balls in the air for the rest of your natural life than just be comfortably dead? "'I should like to know your ideas on the point. "'What's the good of it all? "'Supposing you're the most wonderful expert that ever lived. "'Supposing you could keep up fifty balls in the air at the same time "'and could balance fifty billiard cues, one on top of another, on your nose. "'What's the good of it?' Andrew rubbed his head. Such problems had never occurred to him. Old Ben Frillin's philosophy, pounded into him, at times literally with a solid and well-deserved paternal cuff, could be summed up in the eternal dictum, That which thou hast to do, do it with all thy might. It was the beginning and end of his rule of life. He looked not, nor thought of looking, further. And now came this Schopenhauerian with his question, What's the good of it? "'I suppose I'm an artist in my way,' he replied modestly. "'Artist!' Bacchus laughed derisively. "'Pardon me, but you don't know what the word means. "'An artist interprets nature in concrete terms of emotion, "'in words, in colour, in sound, in stone. "'I don't say that he deserves to live. "'I could prove to you, if I had time, "'that Michelangelo and Dante and Beethoven "'were the curses of humanity, much better dead. "'But anyhow,' They were artists. Even I, with my tin pot voice singing Annie Lorry and the Sands of Dee, and such like claptrap, lump in the throat of the grocer and his wife, am an artist. But you, my dear fellow, with your fifty billiard cues on top of your nose. There's a devil of a lot of skill about it, of course, but nothing artistic. It means nothing. Yet if I could perform the feat, said Andrew, thousands and thousands of people would come to see me, more likely a million no no doubt but what would be the good of it when you had done it and they had seen it sheer waste of half your lifetime and a million hours on the part of the public which is over forty thousand days which is over a hundred years fancy a century of the world's energy wasted in seeing you balance billiard cues on the end of your nose andrew reflected for a long time his elbow on the cafe table his hand covering his eyes there must surely be some fantasy in this remorseless argument which reduced his life's work to almost criminal futility. At last light reached him. He held out his other hand and raised his head. Attende, I must say in French what has come into my mind. Surely I am an artist, according to your definition. I interpret nature, the marvellous human mechanism in terms of emotion, the emotion of wonder. The balance of fifty billy give the million people the same catch at the throat as the song or the picture, "'and they lose themselves for an hour "'in a new revelation of the possibilities of existence. "'And so I save the world a hundred years of the sorrow and care of life.' "'Bacchus looked at him approvingly. "'Good,' said he. "'Very good. "'Thank God I've at last come across a man with a brain "'that isn't atrophied for want of use. "'I love talking for talking's sake. "'Good talk, don't you?' "'I cannot say that I do,' replied Andrew honestly. "'I've never thought of it.' "'But you must, my dear Lackaday. "'You have no idea how it stimulates your intellect, "'your own vague ideas, and sends you away with the comforting conviction "'of what a damned fool the other fellow is. "'It's the cheapest recreation in the world, when you can get it, "'and it doesn't matter whether you're in purple and fine linen or in rags "'or in the greasy dress-suit of a café-concert-singer.' "'He beckoned the waiter. "'Shall we go?' they parted outside and went their respective ways. The next night they again supped together, and the night after that, until it became a habit. In his long talks with the idle and cynical tenor, Andrew learned many things. Now, parenthetically, certain facts in the previous career of Andrew Lackaday have to be noted. Madame Flint had brought him up nominally in the Roman Catholic faith, which, owing to his peripatetic existence, was a very nebulous affair without much real meaning. And Ben Flint, taking more pains, had reared in him a sturdy Lancashire fear of God, and duty towards his neighbour, and duty towards himself, and had given him the golden rule above mentioned. Ben had also seen to his elementary education, so that the regime de participe passé had no difficulties for him, and Racine and Bossuet were not empty names, seeing that he had learned by heart extracts from the writings of these immortals in his school primer. That they conveyed little to him but a sense of paralysing boredom is neither here nor there. And Ben Flint, most worthy and pertinacious of Britons, for the fourteen impressionable years during which he was the arbiter of young Andrew's destiny, never for an hour allowed him to forget that he was an Englishman. That Andrew should talk French, his stepmother tongue, to all the outside world was a matter of necessity. But if he addressed a word of French to him, Ben Flint, there was the devil to pay. And if he picked up from the English stable hands vulgarisms and debased vowel sounds, Ben Flint had the genius to compel their rejection. My father, writes Decadet, for as such he always regarded Ben Flint, was the most remarkable man I have ever known. That he loved me with his whole nature I never doubted, and I worshipped the ground on which he trod but he was remorseless in his enforcement of obedience i am lost in wonder at his achievement still even ben flint could not do everything the eternal precepts of morality the colloquial practice of english speech the ineradicable principles of english birth and patriotism the elementary though thorough french education the intensive physical training in all phases of circus life took every hour that Ben Flint could spare from his strenuous professional career as a vagabond circus clown. I who knew Ben Flint, and drank of his wisdom gained in many lands, had been disposed to wonder why he did not empty it to broaden the intellectual and aesthetic horizon of his adopted son. But on thinking over the matter, how could he? He had spent all his time in filling up the boy with essentials." Just at that time when Andrew might have profited by the strong, rough intellectuality that had so greatly attracted me as a young man, Ben Flint died. In the realm of gymnasts, jugglers, circus-riders, dancers, in which Andrew had thence found his being, there was no one to replace the mellow old English clown, who travelled around with Stern and Montaigne and Shakespeare and Bunyan and the Bible as the only books of his permanent library such knowledge as he possessed of the myriad activities of the great world outside his professional circle, he picked up in aimless and desultory reading. In Horatio Bacchus, therefore, Andrew met for the first time a human being interested in the intellectual aspect of life, one who advanced outrageous propositions just for the joy of supporting them and of refuting counter-arguments, one in fact who, to his initial amazement, could juggle with ideas as he juggled with concrete objects. In this companionship he found an unknown stimulus. He would bid his friend adieu and go away, his brain catching feverishly at elusive theories and new conceptions. Sometimes he went off thrilled with a sense of intellectual triumph. He had beaten his adversary. He had maintained his simple moral faith against ingenious sophistry. He realised himself, as a thinking being, impelled by a new force to furnish himself with satisfying reasons for conduct. It was through Horatio Bacchus that he discovered the Venus of Milo, and Marcus Aurelius, and Longchamp races. From the last he derived the most immediate benefit. "'If you've never been to a race-meeting,' said Bacchus, "'you've missed one of the elementary opportunities of a liberal education.' "'Nowhere else can you have such a chance of studying human imbecility, knavery and greed. "'You can also glut your eyes with the spectacle of useless men, expensive women and astounded "'sensitive animals.' "'I prefer,' replied Andrew, with his wide grin, "'to keep my faith in mankind and horses. "'And I,' said Bacchus, "'love to realise myself for what I really am—an imbecile, a knave, and a useless craver of money— for which I have not had the indignity of working. It soothes me to feel that for all my heritage of culture I am nothing more or less than one of the rabble Rout. I have backed horses ever since I was a boy, and in my time I have had a pure delight in pawning my underwear in order to do so. "'It seems to be the height of folly,' said sober Andrew. Bacchus regarded him with his melancholy mocking eyes. "'To paraphrase a remark of yours on the occasion of our first meeting,' if a man is not a fool in something he were better dead at any rate let me show you this fool's pellet so andrew assented humbly on foot mingling with the paris crowd bacchus wore a sun-stained brown and white check suit and an old grey bowler hat and carried a pair of racing-glasses slung across his shoulders all of which transformed his aspect from that in evening dress of the broken old tragedian to that of the bookmaker's tout rejected of honest book-making men. As for Andrew, he made no change in his ordinary, modest, ill-fitting tweeds, of which the sleeves were never long enough, and his long red neck mounted high above the white of his collar, and his straw hat was, as usual, clamped on the carroty thatch of his hair. For them no tickets for stands, lawn, or enclosure— The far-off, gaily-dressed crowd in these exclusive demesne shimmered before Andrew's vision as remote as some radiant planetary choir. The stir on the field, however, excited him. The sun shone through a clear air on this late meeting of the season, investing it with an air of innocent holiday gaiety, which stultified Bacchus's bleak description, and Andrew's great height overtopping the crowd afforded him a fair view of the course. Steeped in horse-law, and confidently prophetic. To the admiration of Andrew he ran through the entries for each race, analysing their histories, summarising their form, and picking out dead certainties with an esoteric knowledge derived from dark and mysterious sources. Andrew followed him to the booths of the Paris Mutuel, and, betting his modest five-franc piece on each of the first two events, found Bacchus infallible. But on looking down the list of entries for the great race of the day, he was startled to find a name which he had only once met with before, and which he had all but forgotten. It was Elodie. My friend, said Bacchus, now is the time to make a bold bid for a sure fortune. There is a horse called Goffredo, which is quoted in the sacred inner ring of those that know, at eight to one. I have information from this boar rabble that he will win, and that he will come out at about fifteen to one. "'I shall therefore invest my five louis in the certain hope of seventy-five beautiful golden coins clinking into my hand. "'Come thou and do likewise.' "'I am going to back Elodie,' said Andrew. "'Bacchus stared at him. "'Elodie! That ambulatory assemblage of cat's meat! "'Why, she has never been placed in a race in her life! Look at her!' "'He pulled Andrew as near the railings as they could get. "'and soon picked her out of the eight or nine cantering down the strait. "'A sleek, mild, contented bay, "'whose ambling gentleness was greeted with a murmur of derision. "'Did you ever see such a cow?' "'I like the look of her,' said Andrew. "'Why, in the name of—' "'She looks as if she would be kind to children,' replied Andrew. "'They rushed quickly to the Paris mutuel. "'Bacchus paid his five louis for his grafado ticket. "'He turned to seek Andrew.' "'But Andrew had gone. "'In a moment or two they met among the scurrying swarm about the booths. "'What have you done?' "'I've put a Louis on Elodie,' said Andrew. "'The next time I want to give you a happy day, "'I'll take you to the Young Men's Christian Association,' "'said Bacchus witheringly. "'Let us see the race,' said Andrew. "'They paid a franc apiece for a stand on a bench, "'and watched as much of the race as they could see. "'And Bacchus forgot to share his glasses with Andrew.' caught now and then an uncomprehending sight of coloured dots on moving objects, and gaped in equally uncomprehensible bewilderment when the racing streak flashed home up the street. A strange cry, not of gladness but of wonder, burst from the great crowd. Andrew turned to Bacchus, who, with glasses lowered, was looking at him with hollow eyes from which the mockery had fled. "'What's the matter?' asked Andrew. "'The matter?' Your running nightmare has won. Why the devil couldn't you have given me the tip? You must have known something. No one could play such a game without knowing. It's damned unfriendly. Believe me, I had no tip, Andrew protested. I never heard of the beast before. Then why the blazes did you pick her out? Ah, said Andrew. Then, realising that his philosophical and paradoxical friend was in sordid earnest, he said mildly, "'There was a girl of that name who once brought me good luck.' The gambler, alive to superstitious intuitions, repented immediately of his anger. "'That's worth all the tips in the world. Why didn't you tell me?' "'I don't wear my heart upon my sleeve,' replied Andrew. So peace was made. The thin crowd were on their booth of the Paris mutuel, mainly composed of place-winners, and when the placards of the odds went up, Bacchus gripped his companion's arm. "'My God! A hundred and three to one! Why didn't you plank on your last penny?' "'I'm very well content with two thousand francs,' said Andrew. "'It's something against a rainy day.' They reached the guichet, and Andrew drew his money. "'Suppose the impossible animal hadn't won, You would have been rather sick.' "'No,' replied Andrew, after a moment's thought. I should have regarded my louis as a tribute to the memory of one who did me a great service. I believe, said Bacchus, that if I could only turn sentimentalist, I should make my fortune. Let us go and find a drink, said Andrew. For the second time Elodie brought him luck. This time, in the shape of a hundred and three louis, a goodly sum when one has to live from hand to mouth, came, at the end of their engagement at La Boite Blanche, when they lost even that precarious method of existence. time in his life, Andrew spent a month in vain search for employment. Dead-season Paris had more variety artists than it knew what to do with. The provinces, so the rehabilitated Moignon and his confrères, the other agents, declared, in terms varying from apologetic stupor to frank brutality, unique entertainment. "'But what shall I do?' asked the anxious André. "'Wait, right, Monsieur, cher, we shall soon well arrange it,' said Moignon. "'Huh?' pantomimed the other agents, with shrugged shoulders and helplessly outspread her hands. "'And it happened too that Bacchus, the sweet balladmonger, find found himself on the same rocks of unemployment. "'I have,' said he, one evening, when the stranded pair were sitting outside a horrid little liquor retreat with a zinc-bar in the Faubourg Saint-Denis luxury of consommation at sixty centimes on the grand boulevard had faded from their dreams i have my dear friend just enough to carry me on for a fortnight and i too said andrew but your hundred louis at Longchamp? they are put away said andrew thank god said bacchus andrew detected a lack of altruism in the pious note of praise he did not love bacchus to such a pitch of brotherly affection as would warrant his relieving him of responsibility for self-support. He had already fed Bacchus for three days. "'They are put away,' he repeated. "'Bring them out of darkness into the light of day,' said Bacchus. "'What are talents in a napkin? "'You are a capitalist. "'I am a man with ideas. "'May I order another of this Mastroquet's bowel-gripping absinthe "'in order to expound a scheme?' "'Thank you, my dear Lackaday. "'Oui, encore une.' "'Tell me, have you ever been to England?' "'No,' said Nagaday. "'Have you ever heard of Pierrot?' "'On the stage, masked balls, yes.' "'But real Pierrot who make money?' "'In England. What do you mean?' "'There is in England a blatant, vulgar, unimaginative, hideous institution known as the Seaside.' "'Well,' said Andrew, "'the dingy proprietor of the Zinc brought out the absinthe. Bacchus arranged the perforated spoon, carrying its lump of sugar over the glass, and began to drop the water from the decanter. If you will bear with me for a minute or two, until the sugar's melted, I'll tell you all about it. End of chapter 6